Welcome to today's edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In addition to feature reports, I'll bring you a look at regional and national agricultural news. And the show starts right after this. We're waking up to a new dawn in agriculture. A better way, where farmers stop working the soil and start working with it. At Huma, our carbon-rich, humate-based products improve soil health and fertility, deliver nutrients more efficiently, and reduce crop input costs. Welcome to Humix Solutions with a human touch. Visit Huma.us to learn more. According to the latest November milk production report for California, milk production during November totaled 3.27 billion pounds, down 1.7% from November of 2022 and down 1.3% from October of 2023. The number of milk cows on farms in California was 1.71 million head, down 11,000 head from November of 2022 and unchanged from October of 2023. Production per cow in California averaged 1,910 pounds, down 20 pounds from November of 2022 and down 25 pounds from October of 2023. Supply of both bok choy and kale looks to be ample and steady. There are no major gaps in availability. With the weather cooling down and less wind, quality has improved with darker and fuller leaves, less insect pressure damage, and better yields. That according to Megan Ichimoto of San Miguel Produce Incorporated based in Oxnard. While both types of green vegetables are available year-round, the winter harvest started later this season due to the heavy rains at the beginning of the year that caused summer programs to finish later than usual. Right now, San Miguel Produce is sourcing greens from a few regions, including northern Mexico, southern California, and central California. She says growing conditions have been steady and their growers expect a normal winter season with good yields. As for demand, the holiday season typically brings about an increased interest in southern comfort greens like collard, mustard, and turnips. She says they expect to see an increase in kale and bok choy as New Year's resolutions and Lunar New Year celebrations begin. They typically see an increase in hearty salads served daily during the holiday celebration and used in a variety of applications post-New Year for the diet season when many consumers look to making healthier food choices. While in recent years, kale saw increasing popularity with consumers, Aichimoto says that interest has somewhat leveled off, though dark leafy greens continue to be a staple in diets and menus for their nutrient density and culinary versatility. She says they have recently seen increased demand for their de-stemmed green and Tuscan kale items where the middle has been removed. These items are great for salad applications and provide increased yield and reduced labor for food service customers. As for pricing compared to last year, this year kale is in excess supply. The prices are slightly up. She says bok choy prices are high due to increased demand and looking ahead as long as the weather cooperates. The steady supply of all dark and leafy greens this winter is expected as they look to the lunar new year in February and as Asian cuisines and flavors continue to trend, they see consumers look to cooking Asian vegetables like bok choy at home in more mainstream ways. The U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has reversed the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's approval of the antibiotic streptomycin as a pesticide on citrus crops. The court determined the EPA's 2021 decision to allow spraying of streptomycin on citrus crops across the country to be unlawful under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act and the Endangered Species Act. It also held that the seriousness of the EPA's errors required to vacate approval of the pesticide. The decision directs the EPA to bolster its analysis of the potential risk to pollinators and assess whether streptomycin is actually effective for one of its approved uses. 
As of January 1st, significant amendments to California's paid sick leave law will come into effect, impacting employers and employees across the state. The law is known as the Healthy Workplaces, Healthy Families Act. The main changes in implementation guidelines include an increase in sick leave entitlement. The minimum paid sick leave entitlement for employees in California will be 40 hours or five days of sick leave per year. That's an increase from the previous cap of 24 hours or three days. Adaptation to various work schedules. The law caters to diverse work schedules. For instance, an employee working 10-hour days would be entitled to a minimum of 50 hours of paid sick leave, while an employee working 6-hour days and taking 5 days of sick leave would have 10 hours remaining. Eligibility criteria. Most employees who work at least 30 days for the same employer within a year in California are eligible for paid sick leave, including part-time, per diem, and temporary employees. Transition to new requirements. Employers who previously provided less than the new minimum must update their policies and inform employees accordingly. For instance, employers who use an upfront method and provided three days or 24 hours of leave on an employee's anniversary must now either provide an additional two days or 16 hours on January 1st or reset the leave period to start January 1st, providing five days or 40 hours of leave. Accrual and carryover. Employers must opt for different methods of accruing sick leave, with a general rule being at least one hour of paid sick leave for every 30 hours worked. Usage, payment, and tracking. Employees can use sick leave for various reasons, including personal illness, care for a family member, or as a victim of domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. Employers must pay sick leave at the employee's regular rate and are required to track and document the accrued and use sick leave. And grandfathered plans. Some existing paid sick leave or paid time off policies in place before January 1st of 2015 may be grandfathered in. These plans are deemed compliant as long as they provide no less than one day or eight hours of accrued paid sick leave within three months of employment per year and allow employees to earn at least five days or 40 hours within six months of employment. Employers must review their existing policies, ensure compliance with both state and local laws, and communicate these changes effectively to their employees. For detailed information and guidance, employers and employees should refer to the California's DIR paid sick leave page, which can be found at dir.ca.gov. California regulators are set to vote on new rules to let water agencies recycle wastewater and put it right back into the pipes that carry drinking water to homes, schools, and businesses. It's a big step for the state that has struggled for decades to have a reliable source of drinking water for its more than 39 million residents. And it signals a shift in public opinion on a subject that, as recently as two decades ago, prompted backlash that scuttled similar projects. Since then, California has been through multiple extreme droughts, including the most recent one the scientists say was the driest three-year period on record and left the state's reservoirs at dangerously low levels. Water is so precious in California, it's important that they use it more than just once, according to Jennifer West, Managing Director of Waste Reuse California, a group advocating for recycled water. California has been using recycled wastewater for decades. The Ontario Rain Minor League Hockey Team has used it to make ice for its rink in Southern California. Soda Springs Ski Resort near Lake Tahoe has used it to make snow. And farmers in the Central Valley, where much of the nation's vegetables, fruits, and nuts are grown, use it to water their crops. But it hasn't been used directly for drinking water. Orange County operates a large water purification system that recycles wastewater, then uses it to refill underground aquifers. The water mingles with the groundwater for months before being pumped up and used for drinking water again. 
California's new rules would let but not require water agencies to take wastewater, treat it, and then put it back into the drinking water system. California would be the second state to allow this following Colorado. The rules would require the wastewater to be treated for all pathogens and viruses, even if the pathogens and viruses aren't in the wastewater. That's different from regular water treatment rules, which only require treatment for known pathogens. That according to Darren Polhemus, Deputy Director at the Division of Drinking Water for the California Water Resources Control Board. In fact, the treatment is so stringent and removes all the minerals that make fresh drinking water taste good, meaning they have to be added back at the end of the process. It's expensive and time-consuming to build those treatment facilities, so he said it would be an option for bigger, well-funded cities, at least initially. That includes San Diego, where officials have a plan to build a water recycling program they say would account for nearly half of the city's water by the year 2035. Water agencies will need public support to complete these projects. The rules require water agencies to tell customers about the recycled water before they start doing it. The Dairy Council of California, a leader in nutrition education and advocacy, has announced four new board members, all distinguished figures in a dairy industry, according to the association. The four new board members are Laura Bosch, co-owner of Bosch Dairy Farms, Justin Leyendecker, owner of Hoppy Cows Dairy, Michael Austin, owner of Marvo Holsteins, and Pauline Tajarda, co-owner of Tajarda Dairy. All Dairy Council of California's new board members have family connections to the dairy community that span generations. Their experience provides unique and valuable insight into challenges and opportunities, according to the council. The addition of the four new board members brings the total number to a full board of 24. The addition of the four new board members brings the total number to a board of 24, which include 12 producers and 12 processors representing both sides of the dairy industry. Board members are elected for three-year terms and are approved by the California Department of Food and Agriculture. We're thrilled to announce that the North Valley Nut Conference is taking place on January 31st at Silver Dollar Fairgrounds in Chico, California. This event is held in conjunction with University of California Cooperative Extension. It's a golden opportunity for professionals in the tree nut industry. Network with our exhibitors and sponsors who are committed to your success in the orchard. Earn valuable continuing education units and expand your knowledge on the latest industry trends. Listen to our expert speakers, sharing valuable insights and practical advice, but attendance is filling up fast. So make sure you visit myaglife.com backslash events and register today. We hope to see you there. 2024 is expected to be a big year in terms of federal activity with presidential and congressional elections, as well as potential debate on the farm bill. Also in the mix may be the Environmental Protection Agency as it begins to implement a pesticide work plan to protect up to 900 threatened and endangered species. Jameson Cruz, Senior Director of Government Affairs for USA Rice, said the presidential election will have a huge impact on agriculture. If Biden is re-elected, he said agriculture will likely see more of the same policies with a similar focus on environmental issues. If a Republican is elected, he said you could see more free trade and fewer restrictions. And if former President Donald Trump is elected, Cruz said you could see reversions to many of his older policies, including trade restrictions. I mean, I think we see, you know, the current administration, the Biden administration continues. So, you know, if President Biden wins election come next November, I think we're going to see a similar path as, as what we've seen so far, right? You know, particularly on the regulatory front, when it when it impacts agriculture, focus on uh, climate change and other democratic priorities. You know, for Republicans, right? And this is kind of an open-ended uh, scenario. You know, you've got former President Trump in the lead right now in the polls, but you know, you have others like Nikki Haley who 
who are quickly gaining momentum. But regardless on, on the Republican front, I do think you, you know, will potentially see a lot of overturning of Biden administration regulations and priorities. You know, it's a, a different mindset, more free market, less regulation. If we do see a second President Trump term on top of that, I think we'll see a huge return uh, back to trade conflicts. Uh, he's already came out with several proposals and, you know, really wants to, to slap tariffs on a lot of other countries again, which understandably where he's coming from, maybe in, in the whole aspect of the U.S. economy, that's a good thing. But historically, from what we've seen from an agriculture perspective, it's it's not necessarily great. You know, when he did it in, in his previous administration, we weren't really impacted by China. We weren't exporting a lot to China, but you saw soybeans and corn and other uh, commodities that, that were heavily impacted. But I will say, you know, we did see certain impacts and and markets that were important to the rice industry. Turkey, for instance, who slapped retaliatory tariffs on U.S. rice, uh, which essentially zeroed out what used to be a pretty decent market for us. Within the 118th Congress, Republicans control the House with 221 members and the Democrats have 213 seats. One is vacant. Within the Senate, Democrats control it by a slim margin. Broken down, 49 are Republicans, 48 are Democrats, and three or independents who all caucus with the Democrats. Cruz said having each party control a separate house isn't necessarily a bad thing because it promotes bipartisanship. Whether the balance of power will change with a 2024 election is unknown. Cruz said he wouldn't venture to predict the outcome of congressional elections, but he said it will likely be similar to the current makeup. I think slim majorities truly force bipartisanship and compromise. That doesn't always ultimately yield a lot of bills making their way to the president's desk, but it does generally allow for good legislation to become law. So regardless of the election outcome, I think it's important to remember that in most cases, it takes half plus one uh, members of the House uh, to get something accomplished. So generally, that's 218 votes if you have all 435 members sitting. But it does take 60 votes in the Senate. And it's been a while since we've seen one party control 60 or more seats. So, you know, again, that goes back to forcing that compromise bipartisanship. As far as how the election shakes out, I don't really know. I don't have a, a good forecast at this point. The pollsters, I think, have a uh, an interesting take on it, but I'm not sure that we're going to see some large divergence of, you know, a red wave or a blue wave one way or the other. I think perhaps we'll see something very similar to the last midterm election results. The 2018 Farm Bill expired on September 30th, 2023. As part of the federal budgeting process, Congress passed and Biden signed a stopgap funding bill that extended ag portions of the Farm Farm Bill through September 2024. As a result, Cruz said farmers shouldn't see any disruptions in their price loss coverage or conservation program funding. The majority of Farm Bill dollars go to nutritional programs such as WIC for low-income mothers and young children and school lunch meals. Funding for nutritional programs was only extended for a few months. So the you know one-year Farm Bill extension does offer some certainty to rice farmers. It keeps the price loss coverage program authorized through the 2024 crop year and continues those working land programs like you were talking about, conservation programs, CSP, EQIP, RCPP, those remain in place. And it does allow for a full fiscal year of authorized international trade promotion programs. So that, you know, the market access program, the foreign market development program, very uh, important to the rice industry given our reliance on exports. 
So overall, you know, we see a one-year farm bill extension as a way for Congress to continue their good work towards uh, getting a bill done, hopefully in 2024. When Congress takes up the farm bill, likely in 2024, Cruz said members will be faced with a number of questions, with the largest one being funding. The proposed legislation is estimated to cost about $1.5 trillion over its five-year lifespan, and the bulk of that is for nutritional programs. If that figure remains unchanged, he said Congress would then have to grapple with how to fund it when there have already been calls by some to rein in government spending. At the same time, Cruz said USA Rice doesn't want lawmakers to rush through the bill just to get legislation passed. You know, Congress has had quite a bit on its plate over the past year, I guess 11 months technically. From a farm bill standpoint, you know, the real contentious pieces are, are what to do with the nutrition title. Republicans aren't very happy with the way USDA went about implementing the Thrifty Food Plan or the food basket that ultimately determines SNAP benefits, formerly known as the food stamp program. You also have the big question of what to do with all of those conservation dollars included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Do you bring those into the Farm Bill baseline? If you do bring those into the Farm Bill baseline, do you remove climate sideboards? Do you leave them alone? You've got differences of opinion between Democrats and Republicans on what to do with that and and how that would take shape. And then a broader question even beyond that on the IRA dollars is, do you keep all of that funding if you're able to bring it into the baseline in Title II, in the conservation title? So a lot of questions to be answered still. Uh, And on top of that, funding challenges. So the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, when it was signed into law, was estimated to spend $867 billion over 10 years. What will likely now be the 2024 Farm Bill, given the 14th of December, is the last legislative day, at least for the House of Representatives in the first session of this Congress. That 2024 Farm Bill will be estimated to spend $1.5 trillion, so almost double the spending. And funding has not increased in the farm side of the Farm Bill. That funding increase is largely driven by Title IV, the nutrition title. So ultimately, the funding challenges in the current state of where things are, how do we improve farm safety net, conservation programs, crop insurance when there's limited funding to do so? USA Rice remains hopeful that Congress will pass a bill in 2024, get it done this Congress. But what I'll say is the most important thing to our industry is that that Congress not just passes a bill but they pass a bill that works for rice farmers and our industry at large. This mainly goes back to the need for the adequate safety net for the rice farmers, the price loss coverage program. Uh, That's something they have to have. If a farm bill gets pushed into 2025, uh, it's important that Congress takes the necessary steps and, and swiftly acts towards successfully passing a bill. With that caveat, though, that it's got to be a good bill. It's got to have improvements to the farm safety net. With input costs still high, interest rates on an all-time high, and bad actors like India, it's important that rice farmers have that safety net. The EPA unveiled the Vulnerable Species Pilot Project as part of its effort under the Endangered Species Act to consider endangered species during federal pesticide registration. As proposed, the pilot program could affect 97 million acres of farmland on which ag operations could be hindered or prohibited. Currently, it involves 27 species, but that could eventually grow to about 900 species. Cruz said USA Rice submitted constructive comments to the agency. While the rice industry definitely supports protecting the environment, he said growers also need to remain economically viable, and that includes having access to pesticides. Well, earlier this year, the EPA released its draft proposal for the Vulnerable Species Pilot Project. So that's really a broad scope, 
sweeping regulation over all pesticides uh, used by the agriculture industry. In its current form, we truly believe that the proposal, uh, should it be finalized and implemented as it currently stands, it would have a drastic impact on rice farmers' ability to effectively manage pests on their operations, and it would severely limit the pesticides that are currently available which for rice, there aren't that many currently available when compared to other row crop commodities. We've provided constructive feedback to EPA on their proposal, as well as the draft herbicide proposal. You know, I believe the rodenticide proposal is supposed to come out soon if it's not out already, and we'll certainly provide feedback there as well. But we're trying to provide constructive feedback in a way uh, that shows EPA that rice farmers truly are stewards of the environment. They're true conservationists. Look, we're all about protecting the environment. But the regulations that come out from, from EPA and even other agencies, uh, they've got to be workable, right, while also protecting the environment. And that's going to help ensure our uh, long-term viability as a U.S. rice industry, having access to, to key chemistries. Election season has already begun, and we'll begin to get our first glimpse of presidential hopefuls with the Iowa Republican Presidential Caucuses on January 15th. The Republican National Convention is slated for mid-July, while the Democratic Convention is planned for mid-August. This is Vicki Boyd reporting for My Ag Life. We know it's been tough managing inputs and resources lately. That's why we're inviting you to the Inputs Ag Summit on January 10th in Fresno, California. This event is a lifeline for specialty crop growers, PCAs, CCAs, and applicators alike. It's your opportunity to get help in today's challenging landscape. What will you find at the Input Ag Summit? Cost-saving seminars, networking with experts, special panel discussions, and solutions for hard times. Visit myaglife.com backslash events today to sign up for this new and exciting conference. According to a report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, between November of 2022 and October of 2023, U.S. fresh products exports amounted to $6.9 billion, increasing by 1% over the previous year, but registering a 4% decrease compared to 2018. Vegetable exports totaled $2.8 billion during this period. That is 1% less than 2018, but 9% more than in 2022. Fresh fruit exports amounted to $4.2 billion. That's 2% more than the same period of the previous year but 11% less than in 2018. On the other hand, U.S. fresh fruit and vegetable imports totaled $32 billion between November of 2022 and October of 2023, 5% more than in the previous year and 43% more than in 2018. Fresh fruit imports amounted to $19.5 billion, experiencing a slight 1% increase over the previous year and a 40% increase compared to 2018. Meanwhile, fresh vegetable imports amounted to $12.5 billion, 12% more than the previous year and 50% more than in 2018. Producers can now enroll in the USDA Farm Service Agency's Agriculture Risk Coverage and Price Loss Coverage programs for the 2024 crop year. The deadline to complete enrollment and any election change is on March 15th. The current Farm Bill was extended through September 30th of 2024, allowing authorized programs like ARC and PLC to continue operating. It's business as usual for ARC and PLC implementation for the 2024 crop year, according to Zach Dushnow, Farm Service Agency Administrator. He says these programs provide critical financial protections against commodity market volatilities for many American farmers, so don't delay enrollment, he says. He also advises producers to avoid the rush and contact their local FSA office for an appointment because even with no changes in program elections for next year, farmers still need to sign a contract to enroll. 
USDA has many options for farm borrowers who are having trouble making their loan payments. USDA Ag News reporter Gary Crawford has more information. If you are a farmer with a USDA loan and you cannot make the loan payment, there could be some help available from a couple of programs under the Inflation Reduction Act. USDA Deputy Secretary Sochil Torres-Small says farmers on razor-thin margins can sometimes find themselves in trouble through no fault of their own. Sometimes it's meant missed payments. Other times it's meant farmers who have taken out a second mortgage or cashed out their retirement in order to keep going. That's why President Biden, through the IRA, has worked to add some breathing room for farmers. So far, $1.8 billion of breathing room for 32,000 farmers. Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau says the deadline to apply for the IRA programs is December 31st. But he says, check with your local FSA office anyway. Find out the full array of possible help. Loan servicing is still an option. Loan restructuring is still an option. The main objective? Keeping farmers farming so that they can be a better participant in that rural economy. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Congress will have about eight legislative days when lawmakers return in January to pass trillions in spending to avoid shutting down USDA and a handful of other agencies. It all comes down to interpreting a deal. The one ousted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made with President Joe Biden last spring that formalized a top-line spending figure but had a handshake side deal for billions to soften cuts. New Speaker Mike Johnson says he wasn't part of that handshake deal and will only abide by the formal figure written into the Fiscal Responsibility Act. We're all hands on deck on the appropriations bills. As we know, we have looming deadlines and and we all agreed on that. But what we also agreed to was what's written in the law, and that's the FRA numbers on top line. Without a full agreement, funding runs out on January 19th for USDA, its food agencies, transportation, housing and urban development and veterans programs, followed by on February 2nd, state defense, commerce, labor, human health services and others. But Senate Appropriations Chair Democrat Patty Murray says the blame for any shutdown is on Republicans. Three months into this current fiscal year, House Republicans want to pull the rug out from the rest of us and go back on their word and the deal that they cut. But Murray's reference to the deal includes the tens of billions in the Biden-McCarthy informal side agreement that Johnson rejected. The speaker also refuses to do more short-term spending extensions and threatens to trigger automatic across-the-board cuts without agreement on individual agency spending bills by April 30th. American Farm Bureau Federation farmer and rancher members play an important role in their communities and the organization by serving the local, state, and national levels. Several newly appointed volunteers will provide leadership beginning in 2024 as members of the AFBF's Young Farmer and Ranchers and Promotion and Education Committees. These newly appointed national committee members will focus on advancing the mission of the American Farm Bureau Federation and working to build trust with consumers and others while sharing agriculture's story. That, according to AFBF President Zippy Duvall. He says Farm Bureau members bring a big level of commitment and care to their communities, and as engaged grassroots leaders, they'll have a big impact. The YFNR committee plans programming that includes coordinating the Young Farmer and Rancher competitive events at the National Convention in January. The Promotion and Education Committee develops resources to inspire and equip the Farm Bureau to convey agriculture's importance. JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcasts, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate, and influence growers in the Western United States. 
Everywhere you go, you see West Coast Nut Magazine on a, every one of my customers' tables. So that tells you everything. That's, that, it's there, so they're reading it. Our My Ag Life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go. Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing Team, thank you for listening. Thank you.